You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent, listener-supported radio. I'm back, back in the New York Brian. Brian? Brian! Good afternoon or good morning or whenever it is you're listening to this to all of you out there. Uh, welcome to the Giants Among Men podcast. I am Scott Ishii and I'm flying solo today. Uh, our guy Brian is on a well-deserved trip and vacation to see his family. Um, so I'm going to fly solo today and, and Brian's done a, a solo episode before. This is going to be my first time dabbling in solo um, and I got to admit, it's a little daunting to try and figure out how I'm going to fill up an hour all by myself. I wouldn't say that I'm incapable of talking for long stretches of time, particularly when I'm trying to make a point. And hopefully I have a point to much of what I'll say today. Otherwise, you know, why would anyone listen? Uh, but an hour is a long time to fill to talk by yourself. And I admire that Brian uh, has done it before. So I feel it only right uh, that I give it the old college try. So here we go. Um, I'm going to open by talking a little bit about baseball because um, I guess it's on the same weekend. We have Yank Sox and then we have Mets Phillies going on. I don't really care much about Mets Phillies. I'll uh, leave Brian to talk most about the Mets. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Yankees. Um you know, the Yankees have just been so unbelievably choppy this year. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's been infuriating to watch. It's been, uh, really infuriating to have to follow. Um, because you know, it's there you, and, and so do they, you know, the talent is there. It's on the roster. We've seen more or less this exact group of guys have, a lot more success and play a lot better than what they're currently playing. So the fact that, you know, they just can't seem to sustain anything is really frustrating. Um, And like kind of where to begin with all this? Like, so... I guess here's the thing, right? Because they they did well against the Royals. It seemed like okay, we're on on track again, um, and now you know they they now have not beaten the Red Sox in. I guess I saw this stat the other day, and now and now it's I'm totally blanking on it. But they haven't they haven't opened opened up a season with this many consecutive losses to the Red Sox uh, in like 20 years or something. And that's terrible. I mean, uh, and it shouldn't just be exclusive to the Red Sox. But here's what happened. So they, they perform relatively well against the Royals. And then you think to yourselves, like, okay, the Yanks are snapping out of it. This is great. And then they go up against Boston. And you know that's the real test, right? Like, that's the, I mean, first of all, it's a team that, lead, who, that led them going into the series anyway by three and a half games in the division um, with the Rays also at the top. The path towards a wild card is going to have to go through one of those two teams anyway. So, you know, you don't really just want to play well. You want to win these games. And they're not winning these games. Um, And I have to say that one of my biggest frustrations is watching Giancarlo Stanton. And 
I, I mean, look, I can fully acknowledge that's probably really unfair, but because you know, even in the in the in the losses to the Red Sox so far, you have Stanton with two games where he's gone one for three. He scored a run in one of those games. You know, one for three. Look, he's getting on base. He's doing his part, uh, and and that's fine, and that's all well and good. Also, uh, since June first, Stanton is hitting. He's slashing three hundred four, four twenty nine, five thirty six, and he has four home runs. And this is all coming off the injured list. So why am I angry at Giancarlo Stanton? What, what is he supposed to do? You know, I mean, he's, he's been fine when he's been healthy. Um, he's contributed over the last couple of days. We're not losing these Red Sox games because of him. Um, now he's struck out twice in both games, and that's sort of what I'm getting to because it doesn't really matter. Like, he's gotten these hits, and he's been playing well in June. But watching him strike out twice in those two games that I've watched them in this weekend – it's infuriating. Like it makes me feel like that's the reason for the loss, even though I know that's not true. So I can acknowledge that it's not true, but I should probably get to the bottom of why I feel this way. Right. Any good sports therapist will tell you, you should get to the root of what these feelings are. And I think what really bothers me about Giancarlo Stanton is ultimately the problem with sports mercenaries. And I think, you know, unfortunately, He's a sports mercenary, and I don't fault sports mercenaries. I never want to fault these guys for getting paid, and I'm not even an athlete's make-too-much-money kind of person. I think that they're properly compensated, to tell you the truth. They have very unique abilities, and they're willing to open themselves up to all kinds of scrutiny in order to display those abilities for the amusement of millions of people, and I frankly appreciate it. Um, so between team and league revenues, media contracts, networks, jobs, you know, their talent props up basically a major global industry. So I have no issue with the amount of money John Carlos Stanton is paid, but when you are highly paid and you come to a team like the Yankees, you run the risk of being seen as a mercenary. A-Rod is the most notable Yankee mercenary. Teixeira was a mercenary. And then, but somehow, Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, David Cohn, Tino Martinez, Paul O'Neill. You know, none of those guys were mercenaries. And in fact, I think to a large degree, they're thought of as sort of being homegrown. Uh, but they definitely weren't. Obviously, Doc, Daryl, and Cohn most notably had... Uh, pretty decorated careers as Mets. Tino Martinez was on the Mariners team that knocked the Yanks out of the division series in 95. Clemens, Roger Clemens is borderline because I think that there were people that figured out a way to embrace him. Um, but there was also, uh, you know, a lot of hate directed towards that guy. Uh, and that was even before the whole steroid debacle where I think also you know, people held uh, or were kind of more angry at Clemens over that. I think more just because of, you know, who he was and not necessarily that what he did was especially egregious, um, although his his lying was pretty bad. But uh, anyway, there are a lot of things that separate these guys in terms of where they were in their careers, how early their success came with the Yankees. But I, I do think the the timeliness of the success. um has a lot to do with it. 
I do think, and I'll get to that in a second, I think that first and foremost, it it's something that's a little bit indefinable because it's the connection that a fan feels towards a player. A-Rod was super talented, but he was just such a weirdo. It was really hard to just connect with him as a guy. Um, Mark Teixeira, you know, that guy was, he was a piece of toast. Unbuttered? Unbuttered might be going a little far with it. But I think that he was lightly buttered. Maybe, you know, when you go to the diner and, you know, you have that sort of tower of toast that they bring to the table with a certain meal and the top piece is the most buttered but when you get back down to the bottom it's been like this really like small dollop and those pieces are the least buttered i would say that i'm gonna that mark Teixeira is a piece of buttered toast that's at the bottom of the diner toast stack um as a as, and as a personality uh and that's again i think that's why you know, there wasn't such a strong connection and it became even more and more evident that Teixeira really was a sports mercenary. Clemens was Clemens. Uh, But, you know, it was. It was a sweet feeling to revive the careers of three Mets and win a World Series with them. Um, And it sort of forever taints the legacy that they created with the Mets, which is just an added bonus. We just loved Tino and O'Neill. And I think that it was because their success came so early. And I think that's kind of the point with a sports mercenary in a lot of ways. Although I guess Durant's the exception to this. But, well, I don't know. Now now that I'm thinking about it, well, let's stick to baseball though, right? Where you sort of feel like the mercenary is the guy. You want a certain amount of homegrown talent. And that's really how you connect with the team. Because they become your guys, right? So you want to have the guys that are untainted, that you love, that don't have the stink of another team, that perhaps didn't even um, break your heart at some other point in their career. Kind of the way Tino was a part of with that 95 Mariners team. I've spoken on the show before about how difficult it was for me to embrace Urban Meyer at Ohio State, despite all the success that he had. And it's you can't even argue that he absolutely transformed our program uh, at Ohio State and, and really like was responsible for building us in such a way where he is why we are able to compete consistently year in, year, in, year out with uh the SEC and with Clemson, where we're not getting embarrassed in blowouts anymore, mostly because of the infrastructure built by Urban Meyer. But it's really hard to embrace a guy that comes in when they've gutted you at some point in the past, as he did with Florida in the 2006 national title game. So the thing about the mercenary is, is that they're usually the icing on the cake or the cherry on top of the sundae, whichever you want to use there. But you want to have enough homegrown talent that builds a solid foundation for your team that allows you to have a guy on the team that's your favorite player who has been with the team for their entire career. And then you bring in that mercenary as kind of the last piece of the puzzle that's supposed to put you over the top. And I think that's kind of what Stanton was. We had this really nice young core. We had... um, Aaron Judge, obviously. Then we have uh, 
you know, and we had Gary Sanchez and we had, I mean, you know, Sanchez has been, you know, he himself is a very uh, kind of inconsistent and, and streaky guy, but, you know, early on, it looked like that group was, you know, really solid and that we only need a couple of additional pieces. And, you know, a guy like Gio Urshela too, um, not a mercenary. Oh, we had Glaber. You know, Gio Urshela is not a mercenary because he's not a big name. He didn't come here for big money. So, you know, he can essentially get grandfathered in as homegrown. But a guy like Stanton is a guy who's supposed to put you over the top. He's supposed to be the, um, you know, the final piece of the puzzle. And so when the puzzle never quite comes together, that's the guy you're going to blame because he's not truly deeply in your heart, one of yours. And so, yeah, I know he hasn't been bad. He's certainly not the cause of the losing, but when we're not playing well, there's something about watching him strike out that really irritates me. Um, and you know, and, and I just don't really feel anything for Stanton. You know, I, I do sort of, you get this feeling too, especially when the guys come here and we don't end up winning. Um, you know, then it's easy to start to tell yourself, well, yeah, his best years are behind him. His MVP years were as a Marlin. In fact, he's really a Marlin. And who wants a Marlin? Not me. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. And uh, it's not what I would want. And watching him strike out makes me feel like I'm watching what's really wrong with the Yankees. Um, even though I can understand, I guess, intellectually that it's not, uh, it's just something that upsets me. Now, there's a lot of baseball left to play. So the Yankees aren't dead in the water just yet. But the start to the season has been horrifyingly disappointing. Um, and, you know, they, ha- they can't get swept by the Red Sox. So I'm recording this piece of the podcast on a Sunday. Once again, Brian's not going to be joining me this week. So I'm kind of recording these um, in, in groups or segments or whatever. Um, so, uh, this piece I'm doing on Sunday morning. And so the Yankees are going to close out this series with the Red Sox today at one o'clock weather permitting. So let's just hope that, uh, you know, they can pull through, they can avoid getting swept and that that can be the first building block towards, um, just heading to a better place uh, for this season and for this franchise. So that's my opening monologue. Now let me tell you what I I feel like I have in store for the rest of the show. Um, A lot of the rest of the show is going to be a little bit of a deep dive into some thoughts I have on the Giants. These are officially going to be my preliminary thoughts for the upcoming season. Um, We're out the other side of mini camps um, and OTAs. Uh, we're not quite obviously at training camp yet as it's just the very beginning of summer, but I have had a chance to look at some of the gambling odds, look at some of the rosters of our early season opponents and trying to piece together some thoughts about what I think is in store for us this season. What are reasonable expectations? What are unreasonable expectations? What are some likely outcomes? And um, I'm going to try to my best to organize some of those thoughts and give them to you um, as they become available to me in my brain. All right, let's do an ad. 
You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. As it has been for so many, 2020 was a difficult year for us financially, and every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. Please help by pledging whatever you can. RFB is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Okay, uh, so let's move on to some Giants talk. Since I recorded that Yankees bit, uh, the Yankees dropped the uh closing game of the series to the Red Sox. So they got swept again. And last night they lost to the Angels at home five to three. And let's just see Giancarlo Stanton did hit a home run to dead center field. So I guess in my face, um, but I still sort of stand by my point. I do think it's just when you look at this team, it's hard to make an emotional connection to Giancarlo Stanton, I think. That's just me personally. Um, and it makes me think of him more as a mercenary, and it makes me uh, blame him, even when he's playing well, for not being um, the final piece to the puzzle. Is that fair? No, it's not. I mean, I'm not even going to go into some... Uh, I'm not going to even try and make a point that it's fair. I'm not going to try and justify it. It's not fair, but I think that's the point. It's an emotion thing. And when you're a high-priced player that comes to a new city, I think that a lot of work needs to be done to try and connect with the fan base so that you're not thought of as a mercenary. So am I being too hard on Giancarlo Stanton as a baseball player? Definitely. Uh, this isn't his fault. And if I should, honestly, if I should be treating anybody like a mercenary, it probably should be Garrett Cole right now. Or at least with the stretch that, the, you know, when you compare and contrast the performance of the two players, Stanton and Garrett Cole, I should be harder on Garrett Cole right now than I'm being on Stanton. Um, but I don't know. I guess somehow I feel more defensive of Garrett Cole because I, in part because I think the spider tack thing is a bunch of nonsense. Um, so, you know, and, and in, in a weird way, that's how you make the emotional connection, right? Where it's like, hey, I don't think you're treating this guy fairly. If I were in his shoes, I'd be pretty pissed off about it. And then next thing you know, you feel connected to the guy. But, and I don't know, look, to be honest with you, and this is a little weird, but maybe the problem is John Carl, like, when you look at Stanton standing in that batter's box, he looks like, you know, a sculpture or something. He, he's tall, broad-shouldered, big dude, clearly handsome. Maybe I'm just like, you know what? F this guy. He, like, of course he's awesome. Look at him. Look how awesome he is. You know, why would I, like, why, how am I supposed to feel connected to somebody like that? So, I don't know. But, uh, and, you know, not, either not to say, it, it's not like Garrett Cole's out there looking like a beast. Um, but, I don't know. You know, I connected to him, I think, because he got unfair. And, and, you know, he's been on the team a year. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, okay? It's fandom. Get off my back. Bottom line is, the Yankees stink and it's upsetting and I'm just a fan and I'm just some guy off the street who has is like, I don't even know, maybe five, 
10% happier when my teams play well. So my team's not playing well and it makes me angry and it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, low stakes. So someone needs to be blamed and I'm blaming Giancarlo Stanton. Aaron Boone gets a lot of blame too, but uh, he's a manager. Like, come on. Guy's a baseball manager. That's not, he's not like an NFL head coach. But speaking of the NFL, let's jump to the Giants. Uh, All right, because that's, I think, where I'm going to try and spend the bulk of my time today. So, um, Big piece in The Athletic out this morning by Dan Duggan. He spoke to Dan Orlovsky about Daniel Jones and his development and what he needs to work on and so on and so forth. It's it's a good piece. It's worth reading. I like Dan Duggan. Here's where I think the Giants are wrong about Daniel Jones. By all accounts, he's a smart guy, and I take them at their word that he understands the complexities of Jason Garrett's offense, knows it inside and out, you know, all that stuff. But there are multiple reports that he processes things slowly, which doesn't mesh well with Garrett's read-heavy pass game. A lot of the routes take some time to develop because a lot of it's based on taking shots down the field, which Daniel Jones did not do. And, you know, we're not taking advantage of his speed and his athleticism, and we're giving him too much to think about. And I just think Garrett is an awful fit for him. You know, the other thing, and and I've read this in other places, and, and it's, it's in Duggan's piece as well, was that Jason Garrett came in and he wanted to stress ball security with Daniel Jones. Now, again, on its face, that doesn't seem like a terrible idea. In fact, it seems almost like it's something that would be unfair to knock Garrett or the Giants for thinking that they needed to do with Daniel Jones. I mean, even in his rookie season, he had his 24 touchdown passes. He also had 23 turnovers. And those numbers were even worse this year. I mean, ghastly even uh, in terms of uh, his turnover numbers. Give me one second. I just had him here right in front of me. Uh, and now they're gone. Um, the numbers, they just disappear. They just vanish. And then you get compelling radio as you do, as you're getting right now. All right, so Jones committed 13 turnovers in his first eight games last season. And then he only had three in his final six starts. So they did address it somewhat. But also, the offense was atrocious. I mean, that's sort of the thing. I understand you want to stress ball security with him because he he's going to throw some really ghastly passes over the course of the game where you're like, what on earth are you doing? And, and it's, it's so, and, and of course there's the fumbling also, which is an issue. Uh, But, you know, either way, I sort of get where the Giants are coming from, where they want Daniel Jones to be a little more secure with the ball. Here's where I think they go wrong. I think there's a difference between trying to get him to stop turning the ball over and accepting that, you know, he's going to turn the ball over sometimes. And we accept that to the extent that one of his strengths is that he is a gunslinger and he's a playmaker um, because Orlovsky notes in the Duggan piece, and he's right, you can't 
be a star quarterback in the NFL if you're not willing to take a risk and make a throw into a really tight window and not really know when the ball leaves your hand whether it's going to end in glory or defeat. That's just necessary, and you're going to have to do that. And I think that you run the risk if you're trying to coach that out of a person and you're trying to coach them away from committing turnovers, that you're going to make them start way overthinking things and you're going to take away some of their, or you're going to take away from some of the elements of their just general and basic nature that might have made them this caliber of an athlete or a quarterback to begin with, where you're even considered to be one of the 32 guys who starts an NFL game. And when you're one of the top six guys taken in an NFL draft in a given year, I think that you have that talent. You're like part of part of that risky attitude is what got you to that point to begin with. So I think there's a difference between trying to coach that out of somebody versus the approach of saying, okay, I see that this is kind of how this guy is made up. You're never going to fully remove that from his DNA. So what we then have to do is we need to get creative where we can draw up plays and create offensive situations where even if he does take a risk of some sort, it's a managed risk. So, you know, and very, very, very basic. I'm not pretending to be an NFL coach, an NFL offensive coordinator, anything of that, anything of that ilk. Okay. But just something very basic. Whereas if, you know, rather than having Daniel Jones stand tall in the pocket have a route combination that's requiring him to be patient and make a complex read and then expecting him to be secure with the ball. I mean, that's just exhausting just saying all that, right? Just to just to describe that scenario feels exhausting versus maybe using some play action and a rollout or a speed out or a naked boot or something that gets him running towards the sideline where both he has the option to just tuck it and run it, which in and of itself is a risk for most quarterbacks. Or if he makes that throw and it doesn't work out, he's making it toward the sideline where if the ball gets intercepted, the corner has a lot less space to operate in to try and return that guy. So, and again, I'm not saying that's the magic bullet and that's the solution. If only Jason Garrett would do just that one thing, everything would be fine. I understand it's a lot more difficult than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. But my point is, is that I think it's less about taking an element about a guy's personality and style of play that without a doubt contributes to making them the player that they are and trying to sort of surgically remove the pieces of it that you don't like versus kind of accepting, okay, this is kind of who he is. So what's the best way to take someone who's like this and maximize them? Um, And I just would like to say, would it shock anybody if Jameis Winston was awesome this year for the Saints? I don't know. I mean, maybe it would. Maybe it would shock some of you. I, for one, would not be shocked. I just wouldn't. Like, Sean Payton is a good coach, and Sean Payton is exactly the kind of coach, both overall and in 
in his kind of offensive mindset where I think he is going to put Jameis in positions where Jameis can be successful. It doesn't mean we're not going to see any bonehead interceptions from him. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be some, you know, head scratchers. But when those things do occur, I have the confidence that Sean Payton has designed that play where it's going to minimize the damage that gets done to the team. And I think that that's the problem. I think that one of the reasons why Jason Garrett has been so bad is that that's not really his mindset. That's not really his approach. I think it's just Jason Garrett is running Jason Garrett's offense, the same Jason Garrett offense that we he would have loved for Dak Prescott to have run and the same Jason Garrett offense that he would have loved Tony Romo or Vinny Testaverde or whatever. Like, I don't know that he is tailoring it necessarily to the circumstances of both Daniel Jones and the personnel that's around Daniel Jones. Um, and, and that's, again, that's one of the, the several issues that I have with Jason Garrett. So therein lies the problem for me because I find it really difficult to sort of put together an optimistic outlook for the Giants this year, knowing that Jason Garrett is there. And that's really what it boils down to. I do have confidence in Joe Judge. I think that it's not out of the realm of possibility that Daniel Jones is really good. And I sort of like the team that they've put together around him at this point with the free agency spending and and so forth. So, but at the same time, we're, we're not going to go anywhere if Daniel Jones doesn't play well. And Jan, Daniel Jones is not going to play well unless a good offense is built around him. And I don't have any faith that Jason Garrett's going to be able to do that. None. So, I don't know. I, I just don't know how you can get yourself excited about this upcoming giant season, knowing that Jason Garrett is calling the plays, but I don't want to be pessimistic. I don't want to be pessimistic about giant season in July. So, and I don't want to be pessimistic about it in September. I want to at least get through week four before I give up and look, it's going to be hard because the beginning of the giant schedule is tough. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But the Giants can't afford to not play well early in this season. So how, how, how are you supposed to build optimism? Well, I'll tell you how you're supposed to build optimism. And some of you might laugh at me. And yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right to laugh at me for this, for now. And I will, you know, hand up. I will completely admit how stupid this is if it turns out to be stupid. But right now, it's my only hope. And my only hope is to put all my eggs in the Fredward Kitchens basket. He's going to be the one to save us. Fredward Richard Kitchens the third. That's not his real name. His real name is actually Charles Frederick Kitchens Jr. I love the name. By the way, I love the name Charles. It's one of my favorite aliases when I play with my daughter. If we're playing some sort of make-believe role-play game, I always use the name Charles. Just a little fun fact for you. But uh, back for, to, to Freddie Kitchens. Freddie Kitchens has been promoted to you know whatever his, his title is now, uh, special offensive assistant. I mean, what his actual title is from, you know, 
reading the tea leaves of all the various reports that that you read his real title i think is um jason garrett's babysitter so um but i think he's definitely going to take a much bigger hand in planning out the offense and i think that look i can't call it the right call the right call is to get rid of jason garrett and get a real offensive coordinator who we feel is an excellent fit specifically for Daniel Jones and Jason Garrett's not it. And that's also not even the intention. It's not like that's the, that's what they thought would be the best thing. And it turned out not to be the case because I wouldn't fault anyone for making a mistake. Mistakes get made. And sometimes you don't know something's going to be a mistake until you try it. But I don't think that's at all what the, the thinking or the process was around the Jason Garrett hire. And I didn't, you know, I shouldn't, I guess I shouldn't get into this rant, but no, it needs to be said. We're talking about it. That's not the process. That might be what the Giants told themselves that they were doing. But people tell themselves a lot of things. I tell myself all kinds of crazy stuff just to get through the day sometimes. Okay, but that's not why they hired him. They hired him for whatever reason that John Mara is in love with him. That he, you know, went to Princeton and he's from New Jersey and he was a giant. He was not a giant, but he was a giant. And whatever it is they want to tell themselves, and there is definitely some, again, I'm not a psychologist, but there's some weird sort of Jerry Jones uh, element to this, where there's some John Mara insecurity, where Jerry Jones, you know, is is self-made in his wealth, and he bought the Cowboys and turned them into this thing and, and, and whatever, whereas John Mara inherited the team, and uh, the Giants have just never risen to the prominence that Dallas has. And they sort of let Dallas take the national national stage. I mean, for crying out loud, the Yankees were really America's original team in America's sort of original sport or in the national pastime. It would have made a lot of sense for the team that they shared a stadium with, the Giants, who were part of that, you know, famous game with the Colts that was televised. And it was really kind of the birth of the NFL as we know it today. Plenty of opportunity for the Giants to sort of own that mantle as well with the, you know, importance of New York and America and all that. And no, Dallas took that away. Um, So I do think that there's some insecurity at play here, and that's part of the Jason Garrett connection. But whatever, enough. Enough dime store psychology for me. That's not why you're here. That's not why you're listening. Excuse me. I had to take a little sip of water right there. Let's talk about what is salvageable at this point. So they put Freddie Kitchens in charge of Jason Garrett to a certain extent. What kind of idea is that? Uh, Well, honestly, I think as far as ideas go that are more meant to uh, clean up a mess that already exists, this isn't a bad one. So Freddie Kitchens, before he was and look, I just think I almost think it's 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 unfair to blame Freddie Kitchens for any of his run with the Browns. I mean, I guess you can because uh, Stefanski's done such a terrific job up there in Cleveland, and he's got people excited. But that's the thing; he's got people excited about the team this year. But we'll see. Freddie Kitchens did not work out as the head coach of the Browns, but also let's be honest: like Freddie Kitchens is just not a head coach. I don't think. Um, you know, he doesn't appear to be that way. I mean, here's the thing about head coaching that everybody's got to kind of understand. It's not always the logical progression from outstanding coordinator 
to head coach because we've seen it a million times. We've seen that not work out a million times. And I see it, frankly, a lot as a teacher who works in the public schools. I think a lot of people think or feel like, oh, hey, I'm a really great teacher. So the next logical step for me is to become a school administrator. And you see that not work out all the time, too, in large part because they're very different jobs. Being a gifted teacher does not necessarily mean you're going to be a gifted administrator. Just the nature of the job is completely different, even though it's done within the same building and infrastructure and all that. Being a great coordinator does not mean you're going to be a great head coach. And I, you know, look, I know it's going to not sound like a jerk, but I don't know that Freddie Kitchens is just the kind of guy who's wired to be a great head coach. But that also doesn't mean it works in the reverse as well. Just because someone had a failed stint as a head coach doesn't mean they can't go back and still be an excellent coordinator. And Freddie Kitchens had success when all he had to worry about was the Browns offense. Uh, So he took over play calling duties in week nine after Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley both got fired. And uh, what's his name took over as the head coach, the defensive guy, the um, bounty gate guy i can't stand him um but uh freddie kitchens took over in week nine um and he gets knocked for because you know and again it's and sort of like we've been talking about it's very difficult to divorce the performance of the quarterback from the offensive play caller those two things really go hand in hand with one another and you know baker performed well during that stretch freddie kitchens called things well during that stretch and then the following year when both Baker struggled and the Browns struggled under Kitchen's leadership, people then went back and did a little bit of revisionist history to say, well, you know, but their schedule was really easy for that stretch. And that's why they had so much success. But I don't know. Is that true? Do we know that? Because Kitchens takes over in week nine, just in time for the Browns to play the Chiefs. Now, the Chiefs, of course, are known far more for their offense than for their defense. At least that was more so uh, back then. But, and you'll hear this a lot as a buzzword, there's complementary football to be played. The Chiefs' defense is going to give up more points because their offense is scoring so many points. So it's simply more plays on the field for the defense and mathematically, the odds of the other team scoring are just going to go up the more opportunities you give them. So they open up with the Chiefs. And then, you know, okay. So they go five and three with Kitchens calling plays. Of the three losses, all three won their division that season. So the three losses that they had, they lost to Houston, who finished that season with 11 wins and won the AFC South. They lost to the Ravens, who finished the season with 10 wins, won the division, won the NFC North. And they lost to Kansas City, a team that had 12 wins. And that was the season that they lost to New England in the AFC title game. So that was when they were just on the verge of being Super Bowl champs. So... What were their wins? Now, keep in mind, the Browns, off of that five-game winning streak, ended their season with a record of 7, 8, and 1. So, basically, they ended the season as a 500 team, okay? They beat Atlanta 28-16. to Baker Mayfield was 17 of 20. So, only threw 20 passes, but he completed 17 of them. 
for 216 yards and three touchdowns, while Nick Chubb ran for 176 yards. Atlanta finished that year 7-9, and nine, second in the NFC South. So second place in the NFC South. 7-9 and nine is not great, but it's, again, similar to 7-8-1. and one. So at the very least, Atlanta should be considered on the level of the Browns that season. So you can tell me easy schedule. I look at that as a competitive game between two teams that are basically evenly matched. Okay? Now, they beat the Bengals, and yeah, the Bengals were terrible. There's no question. And and the Bengals were two of those five wins. So that can't be discounted. But again, the Browns were terrible. Just one year before the season that I'm talking about, which is the 2018 season in 2017, the Browns were the laughing stock of the league. The Browns were this Bengals team. And they're only one year removed from that season. So look, that's probably the biggest stretch I'm making in in trying to, to sell you on the idea that the schedule wasn't too easy. I'm not saying the schedule wasn't easy. What I'm saying is, is that the schedule is not, you know, it wasn't just a cakewalk, you know, it wasn't, or it doesn't just discount any, any credit you want to give Freddie Kitchens and Baker and this Brown team, Browns team in general, the schedule's not discrediting is my point. You got three division winners. Fine. You have two games against the Bengals. You have three games against teams that won their division and had double digit wins for the season. I mean, you know, it's not like the schedule was just nothing. The wins, okay, so they got two of them against the Bengals. They got one against Atlanta. And, again, there's no reason not to think of Atlanta as an evenly matched team at that point. They also beat Denver 17-16. to Baker struggled in this game. Okay, 18-31 to for 188 yards, two TDs, one interception. Still, just one interception for him. Chubb had 20 carries for 100 yards. And Denver had the sixth best defense in the league that year, the sixth best overall defense by DVOA in the entire league that year, and the fifth best passing defense. Okay, so 18 and 31, 180 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, 17 points, and a win against the fifth best passing defense in the league for Baker Mayfield's rookie season. Freddie Kitchens calling the plays. Getting Nick Chubb to 100 yards on 20 carries. And by the way, we're going to have Saquon back this year. Okay? We're going to have Saquon back. So, I don't know. I don't think it's crazy to think that this eight-game stretch of Freddie Kitchens calling plays can't lead you to have at least some optimism for Baker. I mean, excuse me, for Daniel Jones and for this Giants offense. If, in fact, Freddie Kitchens' unofficial job title really is babysitter for Jason Garrett, that's not crazy, okay? And by the way, in one of those Bengals wins, Baker threw for four touchdowns and no interceptions. And again, this is an NFL team. This is an NFL team. I know the Bengals stink. But four touchdowns, no interceptions, rookie quarterback, that's not a bad game. They were doing something right. That means the plan was good. Okay? And look, this loss to the Ravens, because, yeah, two Bengals games, three games versus division winners. I just made that comparison, and I think that the easy counter to that would be, yeah, but they lost all those games. All three division winners that they played, they lost all those games. Fair. It's a good point. Lost to the Ravens. You know, they still put up 21 points on Kansas City. Kansas City scored 37. Andy Reid 
Patrick Mahomes. There's no shame in that. All right. The loss to Houston, they lost 29 to 13. So look, that's not great. All right. Baker, 29 to 43 for 397 yards, one touchdown, three interceptions. And Houston had the fifth best defense overall in the league, 13th best defense against the pass, fourth best defense against the run. But again, we're talking complimentary football here. If you're the fourth best defense against the run, that means they can't really get Nick Chubb going. And then it becomes a lot harder to pass and a lot easier on the 13th. So still a top half defense in pass defense in the league. And yeah, three INTs is terrible. It's hard to win a football game. If your quarterback throws three interceptions, but he threw for over 50% and almost 400 yards. And then the Ravens game, the Ravens had the fourth best defense in the NFL that season and the fourth best pass defense in the league. So the best pass defense that they played against all season came in this stretch against the Ravens, Baker again throwing for almost 400 yards, 376 yards. Now, he also had three interceptions in this game, but he also had three touchdowns in this game. So, yeah, I don't know. If you told me that this season Daniel Jones would throw for nearly 400 yards and three touchdowns, but also throw three interceptions against the fourth best defense in the league, I would say, all right, yeah, I'll take that. Because if you could do that against them, probably cut down on those interceptions when you're playing a team that's not quite as good as the fourth best defense in the league. And then maybe we have a shot. Maybe we have a shot to win the East. Maybe we have a shot to make the playoffs. Maybe we have a shot to meet the bare minimum standard that I'm hoping for, which is just to have a competitive season for crying out loud. Please. Please. That's all I want. Just a competitive season. Is that asking too much? I don't think so. So I hope I've successfully made the case for Fredward Kitchens. And I hope you can join me. I think that needs to be our uh, our rallying, rallying cry. Charles. Charles Frederick Kitchens Jr. Jr. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn, when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. All right, let's take a break. You're listening to Giants Among Men on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Your support keeps us going. Please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. All right. So now that I've kind of given you the Freddie Kitchens breakdown, I I guess I should now transition into why is it so important that Freddie Kitchens be good? Uh, Well, because the Giants schedule is brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. All right? So they're going to open with the Broncos. Week two is Washington. Week three is Atlanta. Week four is New Orleans. 
week five, Dallas, week six, the Rams, week seven, the Panthers, week eight, the Chiefs, week nine, the Raiders, week 10, the Bucks, 11, the Eagles, 12, the Dolphins, 13, the Chargers, 14, Cowboys again, Eagles again, Bears, and then we close out the season on January 9th, my mother's birthday, for those of you keeping score at home, against uh, Washington. So what I did was, let's first of all look at the over-unders from each of the opponents. So the Giants over-under for this year for wins is seven wins. Seven wins is the over-under. There are only two opponents on their schedule with lower win total over-unders at this point in the preseason. Those two teams are, uh, I believe, it's Las Vegas and, oh, it's Las Vegas and the Eagles. So that's a total of three games on our schedule. Three games on our schedule where the opponent, at this point in the preseason, has the lower win total over-under than we do. Okay, so first of all, you're going to have to go 3-0 in those games. We're going to have to sweep the Eagles, which is tough. It's always tough to sweep the team. And we're going to have to beat the Raiders. Okay? Uh, so if we go in order here, well, not in order, but we'll go in alphabetical order. So we have to play, let's see. Uh, well, I'll do this. I'll break this down into, I'll, I'll let you know if the, if the game is going to occur before or after Thanksgiving, because that's, I think, the, a good measuring stick. So before Thanksgiving, we got to play the Falcons. They have an over-under of seven and a half wins. So that should be a fairly even matchup. Before Thanksgiving, we also have Carolina, seven and a half wins. So slightly better than us. Uh, Post-Thanksgiving, second to last game of the year, Chicago Bears, seven and a half wins. So again, supposedly an even matchup. They're considered slightly better than we are. Dallas, both pre and post Thanksgiving, a nine and a half over under. Although I sort of think that that's a little bit of the, the Vegas bump to Dallas. Uh, the Broncos are week one opponent, eight and a half over under. I want to say a little bit more about them in a second. Raiders, six and a half, already said them. Chargers at nine and a half, Justin Herbert in year two. Rams, pre Thanksgiving, ten and a half at their over under. Miami, I believe, is post-Thanksgiving. Yes, they are. Miami posting Thanksgiving, nine and a half is their over-under. Philly, I already told you, six and a half. Uh, the Bucks, which is right before Thanksgiving, they're at 11 and a half, defending Super Bowl champs. And Washington, who will face pre- and post-Thanksgiving, eight and a half. So a full game and a half more over under uh, win total than us. They are the defending champs of the division. They should be the uh, favorites this year. They're not only because, again, because of Dallas and I think the Vegas bump. Uh, but I think that um, Washington should absolutely be the favorites to win the division this year. Uh, all right. So let's go through some of this. And in order, all right, defensive DVOA from the end of last season. All right. So New Orleans had number two in defensive – were number two in defensive DVOA at the end of last year. They're on our schedule. Washington, number three. We got to play them twice. The Rams were number four. We're playing them. And Tampa Bay finished the season with the fifth-best DVOA 
in uh, on defense in the NFL. And, you know, by the time they reached the Super Bowl and they were, you know, firing on all cylinders, they were unstoppable defensively. Uh, even though, again, too, we played well against them last year. There is some var- There are some variance numbers, too, that I'm not going to get into too much right now. But, um, uh, you know, I think that Tampa Bay struggled with consistency earlier in the year last year and probably in the game that, that they played against us. Uh, also of note, Chicago um, had the eighth best defense by DVOA last season. And we're going to face them with Justin Fields. Already talked a little bit about that. So that's one, two, three, four, five teams on our schedule. One of them we play twice. So that's six games on our schedule where we're facing a team that was top 10 in defensive DVOA. Miami was 11th. So just outside of that top 10. Um, And I want to talk a little bit too about Denver sitting there at 13 last year. um, But they were pretty banged up last year. I think they have a lot of guys healthy. I think they're really strong at corner. And they drafted, uh, uh, what was that guy's name? Now, I don't think they took Sertain. It wasn't Sertain. It was the other guy that the Giants were thinking about taking. Why didn't I just write this down? I don't know. Uh, but um, so anyway, I think that that's a really tough week one opponent. I think it's it's uh, a sneaky tough game to open with because, you know, look, they have a they have a little bit of a QB controversy going out there. I would frankly, I would rather face Drew Locke than Teddy Bridgewater. I think our defense is going to have a much easier time taking advantage of Drew Locke. I'm not really scared of Teddy Bridgewater, but I think he brings you a lot more consistency. Um, but what I'm far more concerned about with opening up against Denver is their defense. Vic Fangio obviously was a longtime, highly successful coordinator uh, on the defensive side for Chicago. Obviously, um, he's the head coach in Denver now. Uh, and oh, no, they did draft. They did draft Sertain. So they drafted uh, Patrick Sertain out of Alabama, a corner. They already had a ton of really good quarterbacks, uh, uh, corner backs. And then they added an awesome corner in, in the top 10 of the draft. So I think their secondary is going to be really good. Um, and that's going to be an interesting initial test for the Giants offense and for uh, Daniel Jones and for, as we've discussed, our guy, Fredward. So, and maybe, you know, Jason Garrett too, I guess. But that's really scary uh, that, that that's who we're opening with um, because I think that defense is going to be good and I think that could lead to us being depressed right away because I think that's going to be a really good defense. Then we have Washington in week two. Like I said last year, uh, they had the, the third best defense in the entire league by DVOA. Then we have the Falcons after that. Then right after that, we have the Saints, who had the second-best defense in the league. All right. Then we get the Cowboys. They stink on defense. But then the week after that, we get the Rams, who are just a really good team, period, and have an excellent defense. Then Panthers, then Chiefs. Right. Then the Raiders becomes a must-win at that point. Then then we got the Bucks, the defending champs. Then – Eagles must win. 
Then Dolphins are a tough game. Chargers are a tough game. Cowboys are the Cowboys. Eagles become a must win. The Bears will be a tough game. Like, there's just no gimmies on this schedule. And, you know, look, it's an NFL schedule. There aren't really usually gimmies. But, look, what it all comes down to, and, again, this is what this entire episode of, you know, the Giants portion of the episode has been about, which is that Daniel Jones has to be good. The offense has to be good. Otherwise, this is going to be a disaster. And I think we're going to find out really soon. And I think, I, I, I guess I'll say this. The thing I'm most optimistic about was last year was so a worst case scenario for Daniel Jones and the Giants offense. Because, and another thing too, I, I guess I'll, I want to close on this point maybe because it, it does bug me a lot. Daniel Jones Eli Man- the thing that's most similar about Daniel Jones and Eli Manning is their their gunslingerness, their their willingness to take risks, um, those just total head scratching, what on earth did you think was gonna happen when you let go of that ball type of throw? Eli Manning was an Iron Man. Never missed a game. Daniel Jones has missed games due to injury in both of his first two seasons. Now, it's hard to say that he's missed super significant time or that it's even killed the team because we were able to beat Seattle last year without him, which in and of itself should be an indictment on his play. But my point here is is that part of staying on the field is working through some of these mistakes and getting live reps in games so that you can get better. And that becomes a lot harder every time you miss a game And each game means a lot more in the NFL, as we all know, as fans, because they only happen once a week. Um, So if nothing else, too, I'd like to see an improvement on the injury front with Daniel Jones. Uh, But, you know, he uh, the team will go as he goes this year. And I hope that uh, I'm right that Freddie Kitchens can pull some Baker Mayfield magic with him and that we will see Jason Garrett recede into the background just a bit. Thank you for joining me for my first ever solo episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Brian should be back next week, so please join us then. Until then, go Giants.